Over the course of these past few months, starting with the new year, have been going in a somewhat systematic way through the basic and fundamental or essential teachings of the Buddha as a way to start the new century. Returning to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path of Practice, the factors of enlightenment, and so forth. And I'd like to continue this evening in that same series on what the Buddha taught as the most essential principles um, by speaking of what are called the basic characteristics of life. There are different kinds of happiness, the Buddha teaches. There's something called lokya happiness. Lokya means the world, um, worldly happiness. And there are all kinds of forms of worldly happiness. We've been pursuing them for a long time. Um, and they are happy um, while they last. They have some limitations, however, that being one of them. And even while they're there, there's worry that they're not going to last, or how are we going to get them to stay, or how can we get more? So there's a certain tension in worldly happiness. There's a whole other form of happiness, which is called Lokutra happiness. Um, And that is the happiness that is um, timeless, or unborn, or unconditioned, um, not dependent on the changing circumstances of the world. So that 25 years ago, um, I took a trip with a group of friends. A number of us went back to on pilgrimage to Asia after we'd been teaching meditation retreats for several years. And it was Joseph Goldstein and myself and Mark Epstein and Catherine Ingram, a whole dozen or 15 of us, and Ramdas was along on this trip as well. And we went, among other places, to um, Thailand to the forest monastery where I'd been a monk and practiced for some years to see Ajahn Chah. And it was at that time when he was teaching us that he picked up his cup. Someone had given him this beautiful, it looked like a Chinese celadon cup of the most exquisite pottery, and he was drinking from it, and this famous story, and he held it up, and he said, to me, this is already broken. He said, in that way, knowing that it's already broken, I can enjoy it, (laughs) and use it, and drink from it, and care for it, and when the inevitable happens, which it will, I won't suffer because I understand that's the way things are. And because I know that someday it will break, I can take actually greater care and attention. Look how beautiful it is. And in this moment, I can drink from it. How alive that is. If one wishes to live wisely, if one wishes to discover a freedom of heart, what the Buddha called the sure heart's release, that freedom of heart that is available independent of the changing circumstances of life. If one wishes to find the basis 
for true compassion in this human realm, then what's necessary is to look at life honestly and see the way that it is. This is the invitation of the Buddha to see life directly. The mystery of life is not a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. And all the different spiritual books and masters and teachings and so forth, they're really invitations to us to look and see how life is most directly in our experience. Now, if we look at the way this human life happens for us quite directly, we begin to notice that it has several overriding characteristics or ingrained and um, uh, universal qualities to it, no matter how we'd like it to be, how it actually is. And it's in examining, and you examine for yourself, see if this is not so. You can reflect in your own way. It's like testing it. The image that the Buddha uses is of a goldsmith who's offered some jewelry and then has the right kinds of stones to rub the gold jewelry on and see, is this real gold or is this some other fake metal or some imitation? This is The Dharma is supposed to be real gold, the teachings, if it's true and helpful. So you get to rub it against your experience and see, is this the way things are? Now, what do we see if we examine our human experience? Here's the Buddhist suggestions of what you might discover. If you look directly, you will see that all experiences of the senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, physical perceptions, and mental perceptions, thoughts and images and feelings, so forth, all are impermanent, in constant change. Because they change, all are fundamentally unsatisfactory for lasting happiness. And all are selfless without reference to or possession by a self. The body and physical experience is transient. Feelings, perceptions, thoughts, opinions, consciousness itself changes. And that which is transient, goes on the Buddha, is subject to loss, to suffering, to change, to turning from what is pleasant to what is unpleasant, to what is satisfactory to what is unsatisfactory. And because we cannot possess or control this change, we cannot rightly say, this belongs to me. This is who I am. This is myself. Therefore, whatever there is that we experience of the senses, of the body, of feelings, perceptions, thoughts, consciousness, past, present, or future, far or near, we begin to understand this too is impermanent. This too cannot be grasped or relied on. This is not who I am. So you begin to look. This is a kind of invitation to examination as a courteous audience looking at the theater. What is this human play that we've been given? And the invitation is to rest in that place of knowing in yourself. Ajahn Chah called it the one who knows. 
one's Buddha nature that sees life as it is. So let's take these three qualities that are so central to this investigation of life from the Buddhist teaching. The first, impermanence. Wherever we look, whatever we feel is always in change. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said the entire Dharma, the entire teachings of the Buddha and all that um, the Buddhist schools offer for thousands of years can be summed up in three words, not always so. (laughs) Which is also to say that whatever experience we have, it can never be repeated. We try to repeat it, but nothing can ever be repeated. Isn't that phenomenal? I mean, the world is amazing that it can keep giving us new moments, new experiences. Impermanence. You know, dozens of recorded civilizations, the Sumerian and the Egyptian and the ancient Hellenic and the Aztec and the Portuguese and the British Empire, for that matter. Remember that one? That's in some of your lifetimes, right? Come and they go. They, they last for short or long periods. The galaxies are turning. Our galaxy, like a huge Ferris wheel. The lunar cycles, the seasons of this beautiful spring days we've had, the heart that beats, the menstrual cycles, the cerebrospinal fluid, the NASDAQ. That's right. Mm -hmm. And we look for security. I read that the Americans spend a hundred billion dollars a year on security devices. Yes. And then you remember what Helen Keller says, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. So we can try to find security, and it's fine to have a home or save money or create a certain identity, but it's really tentative, and we don't know when all that could change, because it will. It's guaranteed. And it changes in ways that we don't expect. Remember this story? A commuter hopped on a train in New York, told the conductor he was going to Fordham. Well, we don't stop at Fordham on Saturday, said the conductor, but I'll tell you what. As we slow down at the Fordham station, I'll open the door, and you jump out. We'll be slow enough. Just make sure to run the direction the train's going so you don't fall. So at Fordham, he opened the door. The commuter hit the ground running forward. Another conductor in the next car, seeing him, opened the door and pulled him in as the train resumed speed. (laughs) You're mighty lucky, fellow, said the conductor. This train doesn't stop at Fordham on Saturday. Don't tell me that's not how it happens. (laughs) It happens that way all the time. We make our plans, and then something else happens. It always changes. Unexpected. Some children were playing beside a river, said the Buddha. They made castles of sand, and each child defended his castle and said, This one is mine. 
and they kept their castles separate and wouldn't allow any mistakes about whose was whose. And when the castles were finished, one child kicked over another's and they started to fight. And another said, he spoiled my castle, and they pushed his down. And then they got together and continued with their castle, saying, this is mine, don't touch it, keep away. But evening came, it was getting dark. Their mothers called to them. It was time to go home. And no one cared what happened to their castle now. One child stamped on his, another's pushed his over with both hands in the waves, and then they turned away and went back each to their home. We have things, so to speak, for a certain time, and they change. This is the reality. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and, and uh, disrepute, they change all the time for us. Anybody not have that experience? Praise and blame? Who just gets praise? I mean, sometimes someone <laughs> says, I get blamed for everything. You know? <sighs> kind of extraordinary. And when we sit in meditation and let ourselves get quiet so that we can listen through the body and through the heart, what starts to happen is that as we sit, we hear the waterfall of all our thoughts and the inner dialogue that's going on and on, just churning out thoughts. Phenomenal. The mind, this thought factory, day and night, kind of just doing it. Not us, you know. And different changing sensations of the body, pleasant and painful, and moods come. We're happy and we're sad and we're regretful and we're guilty and we're ashamed and then we're proud and we're excited and we're, you know, creative and then we're afraid and one changes to another, even in the course of one hour of meditation, not to speak of a day. So the Buddha says the states of body, the feelings, the perceptions, the opinions, the thoughts, wherever we rest our attention in a true way, we sense that we are in this river of change. Even the heart, you want to be kind and compassionate and open, it doesn't stay open all the time. It too opens and closes like a flower. It's what it does. And the sense of self, sometimes it's the small sense of self. Sometimes we let go of that and there's this great expansive sense of connection. And then something, someone says something and all of a sudden we're back in the small sense of self. And you notice even self arises and contracts and expands. Einstein said, if you sit on a sofa with a pretty girl, um, then two hours can seem like just a couple of minutes. On the other hand, if you sit on a hot stove, two minutes can seem like two hours. He went on, that's relativity. <laughs> Our whole perception, even time, changes in a moment. It seems forever, and then it's done, and where did it go? Remember that cartoon I like to talk about from the Chronicle of the, you know, the mother and father on their camels and the, you know, the three children in the line following them? I forget last time. I probably told it last week or whenever, but I like it so much, you know. And the father and the little child are talking to each other and he says, you know, stop asking if we're almost there yet. We're nomads for crying out loud. Right? <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
So sometimes people think that spiritual life is to get some state. Okay, I'll meditate and I'll get peaceful. Oh, I'm so peaceful. And then I'm going to hold it. I got it. I'm not going to breathe. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to be peaceful, right? Or whatever state it is, like we were holding our breath. But the invitation of the wise heart is to let go and actually move with things as they are, to allow the reality to show itself and to live in that reality. As it says in the Tao Te Ching, fill your bowl to the brim and it will spill. Keep sharpening your knife and it will blunt. Chase after money or security and your heart will never relax. Care about people's approval and you will be their prisoner. Do your work, then step back. This is the path to serenity. When you are content to simply be yourself and don't compare or compete, then the Tao fulfills itself through you. So simple. Ajahn Sumedho, my friend, the Englishman of the abbot, He says, the practice of letting go is very effective for Western minds obsessed by compulsive thinking and planning and grasping. You simplify all your meditation down to two words, let go. Rather than trying to develop this practice and achieve this and go into that and read the sutras and study Abhidharma and learn Pali and Sanskrit and Madhyamaka and Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana and Vajrayana, (laughs) write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. This is what I did in my practice for years. Every time I tried to figure it out and make something happen, I would just say, let go until that would fade away. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. Some of you might want to have the desire to be the Buddha of the age, Maitreya radiating love throughout the world, but I suggest being an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go. You see, ours is the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana, so we have only these simple poverty-stricken practices. So this is the first truth, the first reality. If we are to live in the world wisely, to see that it changes and to live in an acceptance of that truth rather than fight the Tao, fight the truth. The second characteristic that comes immediately and directly out of this is called dukkha. And dukkha is the Pali or Sanskrit word that means subject to suffering or hard to bear. I figured I'd do this talk on such a nice spring day because we could stand it. You know, it wasn't so much fun to do when it was raining all the time. There was enough dukkha without adding, without rubbing it in, right? But it's the truth also of human existence. I was in some conversations this last week and hearing news about my extended family, cousins and aunts and stepdaughter and, you know, in-laws and things. 
And I don't know about your extended families, but there's plenty of dukkha in my extended family. Does that ring true to any of you? All the different kinds of angst and loss and and neurosis and disease and conflict between people. And this is just in one family. And then you multiply it by all of us. This human realm has this quality of subject to suffering. Anybody not have that? Raise your hand. And particularly because everything is in change, even the good things are subject to loss or fear of loss or destruction or ending or death. There's the dukkha of suffering that we have, different kinds of painful experiences of our life. And then there's the dukkha of change, that even the great stuff doesn't stay the way we would like it to. There's something inherent woven into existence. And here we sit on a beautiful spring day in one of the most lovely places on the North American continent. And even though you all have your own dukkha, and I know that you do, still we have it relatively good by comparison to certain other circumstances and people in the world. And yet when we sit, we also carry within us the images of Kosovo, or the Congo, or Afghanistan, or, you know, Pinochet returning back to Chile and all the stories of the years of torture and imprisonment. We carry with us the fact that last week our enlightened state of California, as my teenage daughter said, voted to lock up young people and then kill them, you know, and that we, this message we're sending to our youth is that we didn't pass the proposition that would give more money to schools, but we passed the propositions that would send more people to prison. That's where we're investing our money. And we have two million people in prison in America. Two million people. And that's unbelievable. It is. And we sit here and we carry that knowledge. We carry that knowledge as surely as we carry the knowledge of those who are hungry on this world while we go into our markets with this abundance. And there is enough food, but it doesn't get there because of greed and hatred and territoriality. We know all this because of racism. People don't get medicine. The Buddha said, which do you think is more, my friends, the waters of the four great oceans or the tears that you have shed Lifetime after lifetime. If you believe this, maybe it's poetic. It isn't actually, but you can believe it any way you like. The tears that you've shed over and over in this human existence. But even in this one life, if we let ourselves know it, there's the dukkha of the world around us that is part of this human realm. And we can try to serve it and care for it and should as best we can. But it's been with us and apparently it will continue to. As Plato said, only the dead know the end of war. That was 2,000, several, 2,200, 300 years ago. And unfortunately, it's still true. Dukkha. Also, the dukkha is that of aging, sickness, and death. 
that comes to these bodies. If we're born in a human body, Emily Dickinson wrote, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. <laughs> Big surprise. You know, I think it was um, Don Juan who said to Carlos Castaneda, the trouble with you is you think you have time. And we don't actually know. And in a moment we can hear about ourselves or someone else, our whole life is turned upside down. So there's aging, and look in the mirror. There's sickness, there's loneliness, there's judgment, there's self-hatred, all the kinds of personal grief. There's divorce and loss and struggle with our parents or our children. And you think, well, maybe if someone does their spiritual practice right, these things won't happen. Then we will be exempt from dukkha. But remember the story of Lama Yeshe, this very wonderful and enlightened sage, this saint, a Tibetan Buddhist teacher, who was hospitalized during this heart attack. And he wrote, never have I known the sufferings which attend my stay in intensive care due to powerful medicines, unending injections, tubes in my body. My mind was overcome with pain and confusion. It's so difficult to maintain awareness in this circumstance. At its worst, after 41 days, the condition of my body was like the lord of a cemetery. My mind was like that of an anti-god, and my speech like the barking of an old mad dog. I had so much difficulty to stay present during this time. He wrote this letter to one of his secret Dharma friends, teachers. Gradually, I've returned this quality of meditation through great effort and benefit and mindfulness, but not so easy. So you, it's not like you're doing something wrong when they say this happens to everybody. And again, we sit in meditation, and if we open to the reality of the, pre the present, we get two things, or three, pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant. And they alternate pain and pleasure, and neutral and pleasure and pain, one following another. Pains in our body, painful feelings, the unfinished business of our life, pain and concern for others' suffering, or just the unsatisfactoriness, the longing, the wishing things could be somehow different for us than they are. How much of our time do we feel that as well? And when we sit, in an honorable way, we stop running. We face the music, and the music is both beautiful and painful. And what we're asked to do in facing the music is to receive this human life with mercy, with compassion, with tenderness for ourselves and for others. Wisdom grows from this kindness, you really can't be wise unless the heart is somewhat tender. If you pull away from the world and judge and struggle and fight against it, there isn't wisdom to be found. But with a sense of forgiveness, of compassion, of some mercy for ourselves, for the ones that we love, for everybody's children, for the people in prisons 
and for the guards in those prisons. Without that, we really can't face the world the way that it is. This from Lama Tsongkhapa. This human body, this life, at peace with itself, is the most precious, rarest gem. Cherish this body. It is yours this time only. This human form is one with some difficulty. It's easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life, you must know, was the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that passes away even as it comes into being. Therefore, set your heart on what is true and treasure the time you have been given, for this is all that matters. So there's change. There's dukkha woven into the fabric of life, loss and pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow. And that's why the Buddha wept when he looked out at the world, because he saw people struggling to make it different and making it worse. Really, rather than accepting the way things are. And then the third of these characteristics or qualities is called anatta or shunyata. And it means, if you look, that there is no separate self, no self that we can say, this is who I am, separate than all other things, and grasp and defend and make last. Because the very thing that we are is change itself. And you will notice in your meditation that the small sense of self, which we sometimes call the body of fear, that tries to cling to opinions or thoughts or physical experiences or relationships or whatever it is. And you know how, how helpful it is to cling in relationships, <laughs> whether it's to a children or parents or partner or something, how much they like it, you know, how successful it is. This small sense of self, this body of fear, um, is an illusion. And we try to defend and protect it. But if we begin to actually study, this is one of the most liberating of truths. Wisdom sees I am nothing. Love sees I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. This is from Nisargadat Maharaj. We don't step in the same river twice. We can't repeat anything twice. You never meet the same person again, whether it's your children or your partners or your lover or the people that you work with. Each time you meet, it's somebody a little different and new. Isn't that fantastic? It's really wonderful to meet in that way. So what happens when we meditate? You think, well, I'm going to meditate and make my mind quiet. Good luck. The thoughts think themselves, don't they? Are they yours? If they were yours, you could say, don't think. Does it listen? The mind has a mind of its own, right? And it has no pride, as we've said. It will do anything, right? The breath breathes itself. The feelings feel themselves. The sounds 
arise and pass, we don't have much to do with them. You know, even this body, we don't really possess it. If it was yours, you could make it do stuff. Well, you can make it do certain things, but try saying to it, don't grow old, don't get wrinkled, don't get sick, you know, don't do this, don't, don't be in pain. It has its own nature, this body. And the mind has its own nature. So again, from the Buddha, suppose a man or woman who is not blind beheld the many bubbles on the Ganges River as they floated along and watched them, carefully examined them, and they would then, under examination, appear empty, unreal, insubstantial. In the same way does the practitioner directly look at physical experience, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, ideas, states of consciousness, present, near or far, and by examining them, they appear empty, void, without a self, unreal, insubstantial, because they're here for a little while and then they're gone. Look at your opinions, and we can hold such strong opinions, and then what happens? You know, some years later, you could hold the opposite opinion with the same tenacity. Well, I was wrong then, but I'm right now. <laughs> you remember the story of Mullah Nasruddin going in the bank to cash the check. Could you please identify yourself, said the bank teller. So he reaches in his pocket and pulls out the small mirror and says, Yep, that's me, all right. <laughs> We are who we are because of the stories that we tell ourselves over and over. This is who I am. But is that who we really are? Who are we really? Are we that? What happens as we pay attention in meditation, or as we let the heart get quiet and the mind soften and open and bring some kind attention, is we see all the stories we tell about ourselves come and go, and some of them we hate ourselves, some of them we love ourselves, some of them we're proud of, some of them we're ashamed of, and all the stories around us, it's this story factory, and realize, well, I thought I was that, but, I, but I'm really that, except a few minutes later, maybe I'm that. If we look, we see that we can't claim any of that. Well, maybe I'm the one that's watching all this, I'm the witness to it all. That's a good tack to take. You're going the right direction. But suppose you look at that witness. What is this witness? Who am I who's observing this? Turn it back and look and see. Who are you right now who's hearing these words? Who is it that's listening? And you can say, well, me. That's a little word that comes. That's a thought. Is that thought you? No. Okay. I'm the one that's silent back there knowing I'm thinking me. Right? But if you look, the more you look, the less you find. Try it. And what you find is an empty and open awareness that allows for all experience but is not defined by it or limited by it. This is the reality the space of consciousness within which this sense of being human arises and passes away. And if you don't think it does that, you're going to be real surprised when you die. Because the whole world seems so important and it revolves around one person, right? Moi. 
You know, and it's, you seem so central to the casting. And then all of a sudden, you're not going to be there anymore. Isn't that a shock? How could it be? And it will, you know, it will all stop. What you thought, it seems so real, it's going to stop. That's why it's so phenomenal. Not that it exists, but that it comes into existence and disappears out of existence. Shocking and absolutely true. And when we realize that, we are not this impermanent stuff, we're not this body and thoughts. We are that space within which all this arises and passes. Look and see. It's true. The ground of being. Now, this stuff is scary initially, emptiness. Oh, my God, I don't want to hear about the void, lack of self, and so forth. But actually, there's a tremendous freedom in it. When you understand the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, said Suzuki Roshi, there you find yourself in nirvana. There is a ground of being that we can discover through opening, surrender, letting go into this wakefulness. There is a reality that is unborn and undying, that is unconditioned, the natural state of the heart that's not grasping and resisting and fearing, but just present and open. And it is here for us to discover. And as you practice in meditation, really what you're learning to do is learn how to swim. Instead of struggling against life, you say, all right, life is changing, let me go with it. And let me, rather than cling to it, let me learn how to be with the changing phenomena and to let go into emptiness. And emptiness really means spaciousness. Empty doesn't mean empty of stuff. It's all going on. Maybe a better word is to let go into that openness which allows things to be as they are. And you can trust it. It's actually completely trustworthy. It's fantastic to let go. You know how this, try holding on to something tight for a while. See how pleasant it is. And then experience what it's like to release it and let it go. Here we are in this strange human existence. And for only a short period of time, you know, And there are all these things that happen to us. I like this story. Let me see. I don't have it with me. Never mind. I like it, but I won't tell it. Um, Tell a different one. We're in these human bodies, incarnated, if you will, for a time. And as uh, Tsongkhapa said, it's precious to have it. This is the only place where you can get a cheese omelet on this earth. It's true. It's the only place where you can listen to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It's the only place where you can see the Golden Gate Bridge. And it's the only place where you can hold a newborn child. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.ghostbusters.org slash donate.